everybody. How's it going? Welcome to another week of This Week in Mormon. Special episode this week with some stuff that's very near and dear uh, to my heart, but I've always felt like a bit of an interloper on the topic because I just kind of... I just kind of jumped into Ukraine a little bit, and I've done work on it professionally, but I am not an expert, and my life has not been appended by everything going on there. But um, we thought this would be a great opportunity this week, roughly six months into the war in Ukraine, to kind of take a step back, look at what's happened there, look at how it's affected Latter-day Saints, uh, both in the run-up to the war, what's going on now, and then to see what we're also doing currently, like what Latter-day Saints are doing to help fellow Latter-day Saints and others, you know, refugees and everyone affected by the conflict. So... Um, like I said, I'm not the expert here, but I brought in some very, very brilliant people who are going to help us talk through these things, and I'll give them a chance to introduce themselves. Uh, first off, with my old friend, Jason Stout. Jason, will you want to introduce yourself to the peeps? Yeah, thanks, Jeff. It's uh, good to see you again. Uh, yeah, we've been uh, spending about seven years in Ukraine till the start of the war. My family and I, our second child was born there. <laughs> uh, so we uh, loved yeah. it. We built a home there. And we're forced to leave because of the war. And since then, we've just been trying to do what we can to help. Uh, so um, looking forward to discussing. Yeah. And you're American, by the way, for people who... Uh, yes. yes. So. Although many people think I must have a really good accent for a Ukrainian. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and for a long time, listeners, if you're curious, Jason served his mission there and he did serve alongside our twin founder, uh, Al Doan. They go back a ways. Al was trying to join us this week, but he had some yeah. conflicts and couldn't do good it. Good old so. Al Doan. Yeah. yeah. So Jason, we're glad to have you here. Thank you. Uh, we're also joined by uh, Paulina Pidubna, which I will say very poorly. And Bailiff, I assume, is part of your married name because that doesn't yeah. seem very Ukrainian to me. But Paulina, it's nice to have you here. Can you tell us about yourself? Um, hey, um, thanks for having me and um, just so excited to talk to you. Um, I'm uh, originally from Ukraine. Uh, I've been born there and been living there almost my whole life. Uh, I I have been living in U.S. for just a couple of years, uh, and yeah, so that's uh, one of the story, one of the part of the story that yeah. why it, I'm connected to it. And where in Ukraine are you from, for context? Kiev. Okay, so you're from... You're Capital. From, yeah, ground zero right there, the, the central of everything. Um, now, both of you, of course... We'll get into this, but you're both working with nonprofits right now that you've started to support Ukraine. And we can, of course, get into detail, but you want to tell us a little bit about those? Yeah, yeah, thank you. Uh, so when the war started, uh, it was uh, obviously a little bit uh, uh, ad hoc, and we were just raising money from our friends and family, our personal networks, and we were sending that as quickly as we could to refugees and bishops and branch presidents that we knew who were driving around helping people. We were helping people we knew specifically. And uh, then as, you know, three, four months into the war, uh, we realized we uh, needed to do something a little bit more. I joined forces with a Utah nonprofit called the Responsibility Foundation, and we've been raising money and sending protective gear and we've been working closely with Paulina's organization recently called the Clean Foundation. I'll have her introduce that. But uh, yeah, it's been great to work so closely with so many people in the U.S. and in Ukraine. It's just been amazing to see how many people have been unified, especially members of the church, and uh, how we've all worked together. It's given us a great opportunity to serve more than we normally would and mm -hmm. to stretch ourselves 
and uh, yeah, it's it's been amazing. So um, we have a new shipment of 100 uh, plate carriers going in the next few weeks uh, to a battalion on the front lines, and their plate carriers are falling apart. <laughs> so they've been begging us to uh, replace their carriers, um, and uh, so we've been working on that and food and and transportation and, and paying for fuel and helping people escape from cities that are under siege and occupied like Mariupol and Kherson. Um, so I have some interesting stories about that I wanted to share today, but that's uh, kind of how I got started. Is it, uh, <laughs> I mean, you're a pacifist by trade. Is it bizarre <laughs> that you find yourself essentially shipping material to the front lines and this is what you're doing now? You know, it, it was never really a, a moral issue. You know, I believe in, you know, the just war philosophy. And uh, if you look in history, there aren't a lot of wars that feel like it's so one-sided as we see today. You know, Ukraine was peacefully working on itself, doing its best to improve, finding its way in the world, and Russia invaded because it didn't like that. And, you know, Putin is essentially like a toddler with a toy or a jilted lover. You know, if he can't have it, nobody can. He's, he's you know, the quintessential typecast character model of, you know, Satan in the flesh. And it couldn't be more one-sided. And so for me, even though I love diplomacy and peace, <laughs> I, I'm not really a pacifist. You know, in the Deseret News, the, the guy that wrote the article, he's a great guy, but he kind of styled me as this tree hugger. I'm more of a Satyagraha type guy, you know, active <laughs> resistance, nonviolent, but active resistance. And but when, it, when it comes to Ukraine, I think the more, the better. We need to help Ukraine as much as possible, up to and including everything we have in our arsenal. So that's my, <laughs> that's my position. And uh, uh, Paulina, tell us about your foundation and what you do with the Clint Foundation. Yeah, so it's interesting because I ne we never thought that we're going to create a foundation or to be a part of like kind of sort of this industry, you can say. Um, but uh, as the second wave of the war started, we, um, we were in LA, but then for three days, non-sleeping and not eating, we understood that by reading news and just sending money or anything like that will not help. So we packed everything and we went to Ukraine. And that's how our journey started. We uh, traveled by train uh, to Ukraine. And then as we came, we were helping with my friends uh, feeding people. And most of our help were coming, like financial help uh, for feeding and helping uh, was coming actually from Ukrainians who just wanted to help each other and who just wanted to support those who fled from the hot zones. And it was just amazing and unifying. And then we also been receiving a lot of help from our friends from U.S. and other countries uh, who've been kind of donating at that point to us personally just to help refugees like Jason. And then as we uh, entered a two months, you know, war stage, 
we understood that there is has to get like there we have to get done more and there's a lot of things that are been stuck in Poland and like those Ukrainians are able to do way more if there is a source and so as we uh, um, saw the problems we saw the solutions that Ukrainians are like are able to manage we felt that we just have to do it and so me and my husband we came back to us and we um, set up with a miracle and, and big help of our friends as well uh, a nonprofit organization that is focused on the critical help which is mostly uh, means like we're trying to solve problems that are the most needed right now uh, and like it's maybe hard to do but we are focusing on the uh, on the hot zones we are focusing on the places that are invaded or under attacks right now where it's hard to get food or water or uh, clean um, clean water or um, tactical medicine uh, as well as the tactical equipment that uh, we are working together to do uh, to provide with Jason and his organization. And basically... Uh, we kind of divided our purpose for now as a uh, helping military with protection and then helping uh, medical like by with medical equipment as tactical and uh, medical equipment for the hospitals that take care of those who are uh, trying to save their lives. And also we working with children. Uh, especially with uh, orphans uh, and especially with those that had to fle- um, to leave, you know, Donetsk region and other regions that are under attack and especially with the situation that they have no parents already. Some of those children uh, are age zero to five years old and they already experienced eight-year war situation in the in the places they are in so we felt that um we have to provide this help and kind of solution for the better future for those ukrainians and those kids that are our future as well um and just be able to collaborate and work with so many great ukrainians towards the better future for them and protection wow thank you it's all it's weird to see everything that's gone down you know a year ago a year ago there was the specter of war with russia maybe you know with the exercises near the border and now the the catastrophe that has come across this country and obviously there have been you know there have been kind of a grinding war over in the donbass you know for since 2014 and and everything with crimea but uh it's a rough time and I'm glad people are rising to the cause. If we could back up for some context, could either of you, if you're comfortable, kind of give a brief overview of the history of the church in Ukraine? If you know that, just just how long have we been operating in Ukraine? What's the nature of it? What's it like there? I think for plenty of Latter-day Saints, we assume there's members around the world, sure. But like, what's it actually like in Ukraine as a Latter-day Saint? And when did this all start? 
Well, the brief history is that uh, nothing was really possible till Ukraine gained its independence officially in 91. And uh, the first missionaries were coming through from other uh, nearby European missions like uh, Finland and the Baltics, I believe. And um, but and I think uh, Ukraine was Ukraine was under the Austria mission at first too, wasn't it? I think so. Yeah, yeah. That's so so I came in. I was a missionary in two thousand one. So that was ten years after. And uh, so I'd heard many stories from <laughs> previous missionaries in the MTC, and I expected that it would still be kind of the wild west. Uh, but when I got there, it was beautiful, peaceful. I never had any issues at all. Um, I served in Kiev, Odessa, Nikolaev, and uh, our mission encompassed all of Western Ukraine. And it's amazing how things changed. But, uh, you know, when the church was first dedicated by Boyd K. Packer, uh, there were some beautiful things in that in that dedicatory prayer. Mm-hmm. And uh, Ukraine has grown amazingly uh, from the perspective of the church. You know, it's it's the site of the first stake in the entire former Soviet Union, the first temple in the former Soviet Union. And, uh, you know, Ukraine has always been growing probably better than any of its former Soviet neighbors as far as the church goes. And uh, it doesn't mean it's always been easy, but, you know, the Ukrainian saints are incredible and resilient. Um, I'm not a historical expert on that. I don't know if, Paulina, you have any more insights into that, but uh, that's kind of the the gist of it. Yeah. Uh, Well, I've been very lucky to be born in a church, but my mom, she actually was one of the first members of the church when the church was established there. And uh, from her um, stories that she told me before, uh it was interesting how they met you know in the movie theaters or like concert halls and they were renting those for sundays and then there was like a first building i think it was actually in 2000s like it was the first building they they officially rent just for church Mm -hmm. and um it's interesting because um the first mission president um he uh, he was he had a, such a big love to uh, to like Ukraine to yeah. Kiev. Was that, was that uh, Howard Biddle? Is that who you're referring yes. to? Yes, yeah. yes, Biddle. it's actually was him. Yeah. I thanks for <laughs> reminding. Um, and I've been unfortunately he passed away recently, but I've been able to uh, come to his funeral. And it was interesting because as I've been remembering the story of what was happening, they 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 read one of the like a uh, journal, uh, one of the like they were they were reading his journal and uh, they said that he was sitting on the bench in Kiev in the park, and it was. I think 1980s or something like that. It was way before the church was established. And he was just sitting with the Book of Mormon. And he was like, well, I'll uh, I'll just read it. Maybe some person will sit with me and ask, like, what what are you reading? And I can, I'll be able to share the gospel. Because at that point, you were not really allowed to share the gospel. It was pretty much uh, like... 
and not allowed. And so he was very sad because in the end of the day, by sitting in this park, he was not able to share the gospel because no one really asked. People were so scared. But then um, and in his mind, he was like saying that he loves those people so much. He loved this country. And he wants to share this gospel so much. And it was amazing because then a couple years later, they called him to be a mission president. And his mission office was actually across the street of this park. And and he, because of his love to the gospel and because of the, the love of the people, There were so many, as I remember correctly from the stories, people were drowned to learn more. They were so new to this that uh, they wanted this hope of the gospel. And it just was beautiful because when I was born, like all I remember, it's like so many people, you know, we, uh, the numbers were growing, the baptisms, the everything. And then you you grow where uh, the dedication of the temple happened. You know, there is uh, right now uh, two official uh, stakes, which is like a big number for growing. And uh, missionary work, uh, even though the war is continues, is happening by the six Mm -hmm. Ukrainian missionaries. And it's amazing because uh, my brother is one of them right now. In Ukraine, wow. and they had more uh, people joining the church in right now at this time than before. Like there, there was like a you know a moment, year like years on the mission when it's like was very hard to share the gospel or for people to accept like the church and its gospel, and so it's amazing how. Even though of the circumstances right now, people open their hearts for the gospel, for, to believe in God, and it's um, it's fascinating. And uh, you again and again understanding that the church is true and uh, that He knows what He's doing. So I'll say that. The church grows and God have a big heart for our country. Yeah. And I think uh, from my my brief experience there, and Professor Biddulph was our advisor when I was spending time there through a BYU program, a wonderful man. And if anyone's interested, we'll, um, we'll paste it up here with this video and on our website. I have a video of him reading the prayer to dedicate the country from Boyd K. Packer because I went over to the statue of Volodymyr right over there above the Dnipro River and all that. And it's a stunning prayer. I mean, a lot of these prayers are when we dedicate areas for the gospel. But from there to where we've come, the the main thing that struck me when I was there in 2006 was like, I felt like God had prepared this land for something different and the church was heavily investing in it. Like, that's what I could not believe. Like knowing full well, like, look, the church has probably been here for about 15 years and yet they are investing in infrastructure. And the main thing that jumped out at me, I remember going to church and I was like, they kind of seem to get it here. Like the saints seem to get it. And that's a, that's painting with a broad brush, of course. And I don't know if this came from, I served my mission in Spain and 
plenty of multi-generational members did not like get it quote unquote like i had like less active bishops and all kinds of fun things that we had to contend with you know stuff it happens no, no judging mm-hmm. but for how young the church was in ukraine i was like wow they've like latched onto this and they seem to like like people are all in and they're living it and it fascinated me from that perspective because i never seen anywhere in my life where the church was so young and sort of not fully developed in that sense and yet the saints really seem to have it together and that just that just jumped out at me so differently from anywhere else i've traveled internationally uh in my life and that was a real treat that was something really really uh really special to see so i appreciate some of the background you provide for the church there and like you said yes stakes, the first temple, you know, that they uh, put in Eastern Europe. What I'm curious about is what, you know, Jason, you were out there. What was it like kind of in the run up to the war, obviously for you personally, but also in a church context? I mean, was it kind of business as usual because church is church and we're there to church? Or did the thought of war with Russia kind of dominate everything that was going on up to and including Sunday worship? That's a great question. Um, (laughs) You know, one thing that I never uh, get used to is how resilient Ukrainians are. And um, it's, it's part of their history. It's part of their culture. You know, Russia, to, to give a brief history, the Russian Empire and then later the Russian Federation have essentially tried to quash the entire idea of Ukrainian identity. So starting in the 1700s, they tried to outlaw and change and stamp out the Ukrainian language. They tried to take what was left and tried to Russify it and make it more Russian. And they tried to make it taboo to speak. And if you wanted to get ahead, you had to speak Russian. And still, Ukrainian identity is there. They killed millions of people in a forced hunger famine in the 30s. Still, Ukrainian identity is there. And uh, the Ukrainian people are so resilient, even with eight years of war in the Donbass, a stolen Crimea, two revolutions, the second of which turned violent because of, you know, Putin's puppet dictator in, in Kiev. Uh, all of this resulted in Ukrainians essentially being able to survive anything. <laughs> and so in the run-up to the war, uh, most of the people in our war didn't believe it was going to happen. Most of my friends didn't believe it was going to happen, but they still kind of tried to be prepared. My company is a Ukrainian company and they didn't believe it was going to happen, but still they made sure all their infrastructure was outside of Ukraine, and that's how we survived. Um, but uh, we only left right before the war started because the U.S. Embassy was emailing every single U.S. citizen in Ukraine like twice a day at least saying, get out now, get out now, get out now. And my parents were emailing me saying, are you going to leave? Are you going to leave? <laughs> we originally didn't want to leave. We were not going to leave. And then I finally felt like, you know, maybe we should just do it just in case. We'll call it a vacation. And so we said, okay, we'll we'll slowly make our way down to Greece and spend a month there since I work from home and come back. And so we left. We headed out through Romania. And uh, a few days after we left, the war started. And uh, so luckily we had brought all of our most important documents, photos. We didn't really have any toys for the kids. And we ended up spending three months traveling through Europe, trying to help our friends. I went in back twice to Ukraine after the war started. And it's funny that Paulina mentioned how her journey started by going into Lviv after the war started, because that's exactly how mine started. I left my family in an Airbnb in Poland 
and went over the border because my plan was originally to drive refugees. I heard there was a huge shortage. A lot of my friends were driving refugees to the border. And so I got in my van, went over. And then by the time I got there, the trains had been running consistently again, and there wasn't as much of a need to drive refugees. And so I was there in the Lviv branch, and that's where I met Paulina and her husband, who were graciously cooking food for all the refugees. All the rooms in the Lviv branch house were just filled with mattresses and water and food that had been donated. And uh, it was hard for me even to find a place to stay in, in Lviv. Um, but while I was there, it was kind of funny, the branch president and one of his counselors said, Hey, Jason, we have a guy in our branch who is serving and, uh, he's in kind of a special forces type unit and they don't have any equipment. They're, they're scheduled to roll out and deploy, but they don't even have boots. They don't have uniforms. They don't backpacks. They don't have anything. And they scoured Ukraine and they'd asked me for help. And so I kind of got roped into this and found out pretty soon that this is kind of the real reason why I was supposed to be there. And uh, we started calling around Poland because Ukraine was totally out of this stuff. And as since the law stated that most Ukrainian men were not allowed to leave across the mm -hmm. borders, I was one of the few people who was able to do that. And so we found a military outlet store in Poland. I drove into Poland and it took forever. Ended up taking, instead of two days, it took 10 days uh, to find all the stuff I needed for this group of 30 guys. And then on the way there, other members of the church who were volunteering for the Ukrainian army called me up and said, hey, Jason, can you help us? Uh, we're trying to make these camouflage nets that the army needs desperately, but we're out of fishing nets. So can you pick up some for us as well? So I got 250 kilograms of those, shoved them in the in the van and headed back across the border and uh, we, we delivered the uniforms and the boots to the army unit. They were so grateful. They gave us a, an honorary patch and uh, dropped off the netting. And, and it was kind of the beginning of the journey for me, instead of just giving money to people uh, who were refugees, to think about a long-term strategy of how we can help Ukraine actually win this thing. And uh, so after that, I came back again. And by that time, we were already... Um, you know, had found a way to bring in protective gear and working with Paulina's organization to bring in medical equipment. And we're even doing, you know, all these things that I'd never even heard of before, like IFAC kits and, and, uh, vented chest seals and tourniquets and, and, uh, all these, all these things that I never thought I'd have to learn about. And now, you know, I've had to have to know all of the, not only what it is, but where to find it, how much it costs, <laughs> how to put together one of these kits and uh, so it's been kind of a crazy journey, but that's that's a long-winded tangent, of course, um, into uh, what, what you originally asked. But yeah, a, a lot of Ukrainians couldn't believe that this was going to happen. And uh, But even after the war started, they've been so resilient. Many of them went back to Kiev as soon as the Russians left, even though it's still being hit by missiles all the time. And uh, my wife's parents are still there. Uh, luckily, they're at their dacha outside the city. And so they're not in as much danger. Um, but uh, the, the members are amazing. Like, for example, they're still working at the temple grounds. I have friends who work for the church. Their job is to maintain the grounds at the temple. And the temple was only a few miles away from the, the point where the Russians got to before they were pushed back. And in our last trip there, my dad and I went to the temple. We got to see 
it was so strange because when we drove into Kiev, we went through Bucha and Irpin and these places that have been totally demolished, just horrible, horrible atrocities that you can't even imagine happened there. And just house after house and building after building were destroyed. And then after a few miles, we get to the temple and it's like this amazing safe haven. The grass is freshly mm -hmm. mowed. The tulips are blossoming. All of the grounds are kept immaculate. Even though the temple had to be decommissioned, uh, the, the, they're still keeping it up. And uh, it was so amazing to see just a few miles from where the last Russian tanks had been bombed and, and taken over, there was the temple. <laughs> and to me, it was, it was amazing because it, partially it was, it was a, a, a miracle, but it's also kind of interesting that it was built where it was built. And I don't know all the reasons why they chose that spot, but if it had been built just a few miles west or a few miles north, it probably would have been destroyed. My friends who had connections in the military were saying that the Russians were just taking out every building that was more than two stories tall because that could be where Ukrainian snipers were located. And so the temple absolutely would have been destroyed if it had just been a little bit in a, in a different location. Wow. Um, so that's kind of what I've seen so far. I think you might right. answer one of my follow-up questions. Um, so the temple is not currently in operation, though, even though life's kind of back to quote-unquote normal <laughs> in Kiev? No, I don't think oh, it's weird. in operation. They're, they're keeping actually, it up. But I, I don't actually, know. You said they decommissioned it, though? They actually undedicate the temple, too? That's what or, I've been told. Yeah, I think, and it, and it makes sense because, uh, you know, you don't want it to be desecrated like they did with church buildings in eastern Ukraine. Every time they get and overtake a city, there's pretty much nothing left of, you know, what we've built as far as the church goes. Are they targeting our church or just churches in general in the East? I don't think there's uh, any evidence that they're targeting our church. I think they are just, you know, treating it as uh, if they even know what it is. I think a lot of the people that are in charge yeah. are like yeah. goons with an AK, uh, you know, at the local level. And so if they do know what it is, then, you know, they'll think of it as some Western church that doesn't need to be respected at all. Um, no. I, I heard of one, and Paulina, maybe you've heard this. I, I've heard that uh, you know, some of the things they've done in Eastern Ukraine with church buildings, they've either been destroyed or turned into sports centers or gyms or something like that. Um, it's hard to get verifiable information, but uh, essentially it's... It's just uh, a lack of respect, generally. So, um, to my knowledge, even if we go back, you know, to 2014 when the war started, uh, the Russians in Donetsk they actually occupied the churches and they kind of so the church were not working like in the Donetsk region. So members were meeting in the their homes for the church meeting. And for a long time, it's been occupied for, by Russians for their use, own use. Um, but it was interesting when we um, went, when we were helping with uh, cooking meals for people, uh, there was a lot of people from Mariupol, which is Donetsk region as well. And they showed us, uh, they were, they escaped like almost in the last moment of uh, 
any possible way to escape it because right now it's very like it's almost impossible to uh fled from Mariupol but they showed us picture how uh Russians stole you know different things like sinks they stole the like mics and all of that and then all the pictures with Jesus Christ and other they were just cut off uh and this was very sad how it was destroyed the same was we saw a lot of in Kharkiv similar thing so they just try and, and there's it's not only our church i think it's all you know anything that is holy anything that is like kind of um there's a lot of churches like historical churches that are orthodox that've been destroyed and on fire because they will say oh military is hiding there so we just uh, gonna destroy the church so in a lot of ways their tactic their tactics are uh, you can't explain what they thinking when they do that but um that's the truth that the churches they destroyed the churches and they have damaged the church buildings of ours mm-hmm. and so the people uh basically doing um meaning at, at the zoom meetings or at home in, in um in like non-occupied territories at least is church like functioning especially if you're somewhere kind of near, near the front it's like what if you're like from like Dnipro or somewhere like that close-ish or Kharkiv or uh, Kharkiv as you said is church just kind of going on did they suspend services nationwide what like what's happening there on a daily basis or on a week a weekly oh, when basis? we when we left there was never a week when we didn't have church and obviously we're in Kiev, but that was still under severe threat. Right. Um, in the beginning at least. And our ward never missed a single week. We, we didn't meet in person. And at one point the Kiev stake uh, presidency actually said, Hey, you can start going back and meeting in the buildings if you want. (laughs) But our Bishop said, we don't actually have a bomb shelter. And we don't know what we would do if the air raid sirens went off. So we've been meeting on Zoom for years now. And uh, it's it's really something that the saints have held to. Even those who fled to Poland are still joining in. And we, until recently, were joining in every single week, you know, maintaining our callings. And, uh, you know, my wife from thousands of miles away was, you know, preparing the music for primary. and. Uh, you know, so it's it's amazing to see just how they kept that going <laughs> in spite of everything. So yeah. that's what I've seen. Has the church done any like official reorganization of branches or units or anything because of the how spread out refugees are? Or is that just all kind of... I'm not aware. Yeah, I don't think so. I think it still stays as it is because there's a hope that everyone will come back. But yeah, to right. the knowledge, everyone is just on Zoom as as they show up to church, you know, and uh, they keep doing it. And I was able to even uh, participate, uh, like visit uh, state conference via Zoom, and it was amazing. It was amazing um, spirit that you felt of those saints that going through war and their testimonies, how strong it is. And I feel like everyone growed even more 
in the faith of Jesus Christ and his power. Yeah, one of the craziest, most amazing things that I saw in in the first few weeks after the war started, we were literally driving up to Poland as refugees, and we were uh, on Zoom listening to sacrament meeting, and this little old lady in our ward, who's probably no more than five feet tall, was saying the prayer, and she prayed and asked for forgiveness for being angry at the Russians. And I was so shocked by that because that's the last thing I would have ever thought to pray for. I would have felt justified in my righteous anger, you know? I mean, it's like Moroni. He was justified, right? Captain Moroni. But I think if, if you think about it, that is the level of faithfulness and humility and resilience that we're seeing. I mean, I'm not saying that it's 100% across the board that. Nobody is feeling anger or is feeling bad for feeling anger. I think a lot of people are angry and sad and hurt. And, you know, there's going to be so much trauma we're going to have to deal with for generations and generations in Ukraine. But it's it's still amazing to see examples like that. Yeah. I, I uh, If you'll indulge me for an anecdote, I remember kind of at, on the outbreak of the war, someone in our ward said a prayer and they prayed for the saints of Ukraine but they also pray for the saints in Russia. And it was very easy in that moment to be like, pray for the saints in Russia. No, pray for the Ukrainian, like, you know, pray for the victims. But at the same time, it kept my perspective where it needed to be to remember, like, also like pray for the saints in Russia, because they're the ones living underneath a far more authoritarian regime and have had their freedom to worship curtailed and are part of the same faith as their fellow Ukrainians, but seeing their country act in a rather aggressive way, we could say euphemistically. Um, you know, it's good to remember that I'm, this is not a both sides kind of thing, but like, yeah, pray for the saints in Russia too, because they are not, they've got a lot of things to sort out in their country in the given, in the way things are right now, which, which also makes me wonder, I don't know if you have any knowledge of this. We've talked a little bit about how things have been kind of behind in occupied territory, like Paulina, you mentioned, you know, in the Donbass. Do we have any idea what's happened in some of these territories and areas Russia has taken over, like like uh, like Kherson, for example, has been in the news quite a bit lately. Um, we know Russia has their their so called anti terrorism law that's been around since I want to say at this point, like what twenty fifteen or so, maybe, and it's made it much more difficult for our church to operate there. It's why in Russia we don't officially have missionaries; we have quote unquote volunteers. There are a lot of restrictions about proselytizing, if at all. And the nature of meeting, I think a lot of this, this is just pure speculation, but I have to guess that this law has also made it complicated why the temple announced in Russia many, many years ago has seen like no action whatsoever on being built. It's complicated in Russia. So what I'm curious about is what it's like for the saints behind the lines in that case. Has Russia, I know Russia has gone in pretty aggressively to, as you've talked about, Jason, even in the past and now remove senses of Ukrainian identity. And if you read the news, you can see how they've switched their internet to Russian internet. They've replaced the the hryvna with the ruble, the currency, you know, school. They're doing everything they can to russify the territories they're in. And uh, what does that mean for the for Latter-day Saints there? Do they even have freedom to Zoom? Do they have, can they do much of anything at all? Or are they pretty much living like a Russian would in, you know, in, in Rostov or Nishi Novgorod or somewhere else, right? Like, is it just kind of the same thing? If anybody knows, I'm asking you guys. Um, <laughs> yes, I don't. 
I feel like in some regions, and it's not only about the church, you know, but it was interesting to see. I've been following this guy who delivers humanitarian help in Kherson, and he um, he shows up on internets, you know, like once in a while. Sometimes it's like once a month, but he'll like show, we keep doing it, we keep helping. But as I'm thinking about the church uh, right now, I feel like a lot of members that are there are pushed to be in some way as a Moroni who had to go through the bottle by himself in the end, you know? And uh, I feel like a lot of those people are... um, are by themselves like they have to keep to believe they probably read scriptures but um i don't think there's church going on um especially in those regions right now that are occupied by russians so it's all depends on themselves it's all depends on their faith and their desire to continue to do that but um and it's been for so long. Um, my friends who are from Donetsk for a while, when the war started in 2014, that was for so long the case for them. They just had to do the church in their homes with their families, which we learned a lot. Uh, it was the case during the COVID for all of us, you know, around the world. But then as well, with like, we, I feel like the church kind of um, have been doing this practice that we have to do church in our own homes. We we have to grow ourselves. So I feel like there's a lot of um, revelations by our prophet, and there's a lot of uh, reasons why it had to be this way. Yeah, and almost just like. I was just going to add, um, I think the saints there just have to keep their head down. I haven't really seen anything. And I think that uh, they're being very careful about what they do publicly. Yeah. Because anytime the Russian army occupies a city, then it immediately becomes dangerous to do anything that draws attention, even so much as walking outside your house at the wrong time. And, uh, you know, our organization has, has helped fund some of these uh, rescue campaigns. And uh, one of these ones I heard about, the the family in Mariupol was there for three and a half months in their basement. And the only way they could find water was sneaking out to the well every night. And, you know, there are reports in Kherson of uh, mobile crematoriums bringing shipped in from Russia to get rid of all the bodies of tortured and killed Ukrainians, along with the killed Russian soldiers, because Russia doesn't want to leave behind evidence of war crimes, and they don't want to leave, uh, send back bodies of killed Russian soldiers because that's proof of how badly they're doing in Ukraine. And so it's, it's, it's seriously worse than the Wild West in these occupied areas. Anything goes. So I think people just have to keep their heads down. Yeah. And of course, obviously, when you're in a, it's an active conflict zone too, that's another wrinkle. On th- I am, do you have, I mean, 
I know years ago the church flipped its acknowledgement of Crimea. We we teased about it a lot on this show because Crimea is what we still consider it you as Americans here we consider it part of Ukraine, right? But functionally, de facto, yeah, Russia controls it and has for eight years already. And at some point, the church flipped and and you saw Crimea went underneath the uh, Russia Rostov mission. And I, and some of us who are more ardent, you know, supporters of Ukraine were like, church, come on, church, take a stand here. You can't just, just, just you know, you can't just up and do that. I have no idea if there's like missionaries or volunteers in that mission who have been serving in Crimea in the, in the years since or not, or if it's just been kind of a, just a no-go land uh, for a long time. It does bring up kind of an interesting issue though, when you think about the church, because the church for all for as much as I want it to be one, the church is not like a democratization NGO. We might want it to be like that, think that that's what its job is because we support freedom and people's freedom to worship, just like the articles of faith, you know, worship how and what and why they may and all that. And it's easy to get frustrated when the church perhaps isn't more aggressive in that sense. I remember when the war broke out and there was a public statement by the church and many people were disappointed with it. I'm curious if you had any thoughts on it, but it seemed like it was just kind of trying to be a very benign statement and just talking about the conflict. It didn't like name countries. It didn't want to say like, hey, aggressor, stop being an aggressor. It was just trying to play it nice with everybody. And I completely understood the frustration myself emotionally. But then logically, I also figured like, well, yeah, but the church also wants to function in Russia. The church doesn't want to release public statements necessarily that are just going to make the Russian government say, yeah, you can't be here at all anymore. Forget this volunteer thing. Um, I am curious if either of you had any thoughts on the church's kind of official responses to the conflict. Yeah. yeah. I, I know a lot of my Ukrainian friends have been disappointed uh, that it hasn't been a more loving pro-Ukrainian response. Um and uh, I've seen a lot of kind of censorship in articles that I've either written for church-owned publications or people trying to write articles about me <laughs> have been very much delayed or very much redacted. And at first, I was really upset. I was really frustrated. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized the church is, has the church has to be more benign and more diplomatic than any country or even any NGO, not because it lacks resources, but because it is not some international temporary organization. The members there are the ones they're worried about. I'm sure it's it's not just that you can pull out missionaries, but the members are in danger, literally in danger. Like you look at what's been happening with the Jehovah's Witnesses in Russia. They literally are being sent to prison for practicing their faith. They're not hurting anybody. They're practicing their faith and they're going to prison. And the same with the Crimean Tatars. And anything they do that Russia doesn't like, that's a, some sort of symbol of foreign interference or independence, they are seriously in danger. And so for me, that is the, the way that I've given the church the benefit of the doubt and how I kind of justify what's been happening. Because, you know, if you need to protect thousands of members of the church who may or may not have the ability to escape Russia. I guess that's a pretty good reason for it. Um, so they have to be extremely careful. Yeah. And, and it's like, if you step back and think, if the church on moral grounds was would not operate in authoritarian regimes or push for regime change, there's a lot of places where the church is currently able to do business, so to speak, where it would not yeah. be doing so. When I, I, was mean, a Peace Corps, I was a Peace Corps volunteer in South Africa, and I was amazed that the Peace Corps 
who, which is known for serving in difficult situations, will still not even go to certain places where missionaries are called. You know, we aren't being, weren't even allowed to go into Johannesburg, for example. Missionaries serve there all the time. You know, missionaries serve in more dangerous places than probably anybody but military folks and, uh, you know, doctors without borders. <laughs> you know, so I think the church has <laughs> to be extremely diplomatic. We do. And it also makes me kind of laugh, but I think how inadvertently reckless we sometimes are with our missionaries. It's just like, yeah, 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 yeah. We'll just send them out to that that super dangerous city. They'll be fine, right? They'll be fine. They'll be fine. And then you hear all the horror stories from your friends who serve. Well, they are like, more yeah, protected. We got, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh-oh, we lost Paulina. She's gone. Oh, she's turning on lights. Sorry. We can I'm still see it. Fine. No, you're good. Um, Paulina, do you have anything to say about that? The church's response? Um, I, I feel like, you know, there was a little bit of disappointment, like like uh, Jason said, it, it was a disappointment, and I'm still learning to understand that and grow, you know, to understand that. But um, it was interesting because I, we had uh, my non-members uh, friends who've been helping us since day first at the church building, you know, and they've been learning the gospel and everything, and I was like so excited because we were watching all together general conference and i was like oh they probably gonna talk about ukraine you know they they probably will say something about it and then it was not happening and i was like i couldn't understand it i couldn't um i was very sad because i feel like even though uh in some way i agree that it is dangerous in russia you know but we have to remember also that uh, it doesn't mean that it cannot be recognized that their war is done for by Russia, you know. And it's we also have to like recognize and help those people who are in Russia understand what's going on, that it's not made up, and um, we also have to help those members to stand up, you know, if uh, Ukraine and Ukrainian people and members of the church would not stand up in 2004 or in 2014, there will be no Ukraine. It will be probably most likely part of Russia already. But we, there is, there is some things that, yeah, we have to be in some way diplomatic, but in some way, I think we have to be straightforward, you know, like Jesus Christ never said that sin is not sin, you know, like he was straightforward with some, like some of the things. So I feel like yeah. um, I'm still growing to understand it and I probably have to trust our leaders, but in some way I'm, I'm waiting for some more compassion and deeper understanding to change to be able to change that. Thanks. It's it's kind of interesting because as the church has gotten more international, we're a lot more cautious with things like this. If you look back to the 70s and 80s, the church issued very searing language about the Soviet Union, like on the record. This was no big deal. But we didn't really have members to worry about in the Soviet Union at the time, for the most part, right? Like it wasn't as much of a concern back then. But now that it is, well, we aren't as like, aren't as vocal about it. But I imagine on the flip side, though, you know, you're both devout members of the church and followers of Christ. 
how have the principles of the gospel like driven you and given you purpose during this difficult time? Well, I think it's uh, been just for me a very fundamental realization that Ukraine is in dire need, and the countries of the world, even when they finally did start to respond, the response has been so minimal and lacking that it's 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 it kind of feels like the Revolutionary War when you know all hands were needed. And, it, you know, it, one person's little musket, one farmer could be the difference between winning and losing. And, you know, a lot of the Ukrainians have started to develop this term called the rear guard. And usually in war, it's, it, it means the people that cover your retreat. But in Ukraine, because so much of this war is essentially grassroots and funded by volunteers, the rear guard has come to be known as all of the people, Ukrainians and non-Ukrainians around the world who are sending Ukraine these vital items and support. And so for me, you know, I look at people in my ward, including uh, a member of the bishopric who have no training, military training, who are going off to fight, whether or not they have protective gear, whether or not they have full training. And they're doing it because they are not only fighting for uh, their freedoms and their right to worship. You know, it's, it's almost crazy. It's, it almost sounds cliche to talk about it in these terms, but it has become so fundamental. You know, how was the last time that we had a conflict where members of the church were literally fighting for their right to worship, their freedoms of speech, their right to exist as a nationality? It's, it's just insane. You know, and so I personally know so many people who are fighting right now who have literally written to me saying, please, Jason, send me body armor because I'm going into battle. And, you know, so it, it's that kind of a thing that you really can't ignore and, and live with yourself. And I remember learning about World War II when I was in school thinking, yeah, I would, I would absolutely have stood up. I would absolutely have been one of those people that would hide Anne Frank or Corey Ten Boom's, you know, Jews that she 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 hid. And and now we all have the chance to really show what we would have done if we were alive in 1944. You know, and uh it it's sad that it has to come to this. It's sad that Ukraine needs nobody's like me to to stand up and 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 scrounge for you know, donated money and funds and protective gear, but that's, that's the truth, you know? And, and if I don't stand up for it, then that's, you know, that much more that Ukraine needs to find from somebody else. So that's how it feels for me, at least. Um, I feel like I learned so much about the law of consecration from those people who have almost nothing. But then, you know, even though we, uh, Americans who have everything, you know, uh, I'm still amazed how any grandma, any like student that almost don't have anything, they will give everything and more than everything. Uh, it's their talents, it's their money, it's their time. 
and it's all uh, for the freedom. It's all for um, it's all for to be who they are, and um, it's very humbling to see the faith that they have of who they are. They know that they are Ukrainians and they know that they have to go through this. No matter how hard it will be, no matter how how many lives will be um how many lives will be you know lost. I uh I have our family neighbors who died. I have a family friends who lost their, you know, leg or hand or anything and I had I have so many people who fled their homes or whose homes been destroyed but that brightness of hope um, and that consecration to you know there's a there's a book in a Ukrainian book by Lina Kostenka and she kind of uh, compares the evil to the dragon and like those people are trying to uh, feed uh, like win the dragon and and so with uh, seeing those people and their consecration with their um, with their hope that um, even though you had anger I feel like right now those people i'm learning from those people i had anger for the war but i'm learning from those people that went through hell that went through the captivity i who keep telling our us don't let the evil take over you you know and when i'm hearing this i'm like wait a minute like i heard this before you know wait a minute like I, um, I grow up in like, you know, with this knowledge, but those people are facing the devil in real face and they don't let them overcome them. And I feel like we're learning it so much in the temple. We're learning it so much in other places. We're learning so much it through the scriptures, but that this war and this period of time showed me even more what does that mean to go to like till the end you know what does that mean um to really believe and trust in god um and and don't let the devil get over you so I feel like I grow so much in the knowledge and confirmation of that through those people. And if I can just add one small thing that I I just remembered, you know, one of my favorite quotes from Joseph Smith is that, you know, a man who has the the spirit of God is in, is anxious not just to bless his family, but ranges throughout the whole world anxious to bless the whole human race. And I think as a church, you know, we need to see each other as near neighbors and not as far away neighbors. 
And mm. a lot of members of the church that I know here in Utah have donated incredible amounts. Um, but the most amazing story of unity that I have heard is actually from my own ward in, in Kiev. And, you know, one of the young men in our ward went to serve. Uh, this was before the full-scale invasion during the eight-year war in Donbass. And uh, when he went off to battle, he didn't have enough money. The Ukrainian military, even at that time, didn't have enough body armor for everybody. And so the ward got together and, and purchased him a vest and a helmet. And he went off to war, and his trench, his unit, was hit by a Russian rocket. And this type of rocket is called Grad in Russian, which means hail, H-A-I-L. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was almost killed, but this body armor saved his life. He came back, was in the hospital, made a full recovery. Now he's married, having kids. But the funny thing is when he came back and he bore his testimony in our ward about what had happened to him and about how the ward had saved his life, the very next week was General Conference and, and somebody uh, quoted Helaman 512, where it says, in all his hail and his mighty uh, stone shall beat against you. You know, if you're built upon the foundation of Christ, uh, it won't have the power to knock you down. And and <laughs> hearing it in Russian and Ukrainian, they use the exact same word grad as for the rocket that had almost killed that member of our ward. And it was literally his membership in the church that had saved his life because the ward had gotten together and paid for his protective gear. And and I never have seen such a more clear example of literal fulfillment of prophecy, you know, that it did not have power to, to kill him because he was literally built upon that foundation. And so I think more than anything that I've seen personally, you know, I've spent nine years of my life in Ukraine. So technically I'm an American Ukrainian, as we would call it. But nobody has shown more valor in the idea of being one in the church and relying on spiritual values as the members of the church there who have had to grow up with this looming threat for their entire lives, you know, that has sucked away so much of their potential wealth and happiness and peace. And, you know, so they've had to literally fight against this every day of their lives. And uh, it's been amazing to see what they've done with it. Thanks. Well, where can people go if they want to help? You've mentioned many people have helped, but you're running your foundations. What do they need to do? Yeah, so I'll start. uh, If people want to donate, they can go to responsibilityfoundation.org. And uh, this is a Utah nonprofit and one of the very few nonprofits that I found that's willing to spend money on protective gear. <laughs> and uh, it's been great. We've been working closely together for months now. And uh, anything and everything is vitally needed. Since the, since the war in Ukraine is kind of out of the headlines, our funding has essentially dried up, unfortunately. And we're kind of taking money out of our own pockets to cover the expenses, to bridge the gaps. Um, and, uh, even our CEO is, is in the hole <laughs> waiting for donations to come in. And, uh, so anything is desperately needed and, you know, even the smallest amount could save someone's life. Yeah. Um, so for one of, uh, our kind of initiative is, uh, to learn more, like one of our 
desire as a foundation it's please read more about ukraine learn more be reading the news don't don't forget that the war is still happening don't get used to it the second is that um i think um it's been interesting to see how uh learning how to donate you know it's a good habit habit to help someone so each of us can take a uh, take action and be able to be part of something that will be in the history of something that changed the world. And so you can um, help through our foundation that is also a nonprofit in Utah uh, by donating towards tactical medicine, providing yeah, tactical gear and protection as well as helping kids and uh as well as helping hospitals and i think um by seeing people donating you know one dollar one cent and like more we see a big difference how uh how it's filling out this hole and how it's healing and how it's we've seen how those donations were able to bring hope to uh, to those people bring smile and um, healing to so many. So if you want to, you know, help. Uh, if you want, if you're looking for ways to help, you we also encouraging to look into your community. What's going on? Because that's how I feel like we're learning to help each other and also uh, to people on the other side of the world is if we start from where we are and then we can grow but people are desperate and they grateful for each and everything that uh all the international people especially in u.s been able to do you can go to uh clinfoundation.org for that right k-l-y-n foundation.org yes. Sorry. Correct. Mm-hmm. No, no, sure. I'm just, you know, I'll finish the plug. It doesn't matter who does it. It's all good. <laughs> it's all yeah. good. You know, and one crazy thing I just wanted to add quickly, one of the one of the donations we got in the beginning that went to me personally was a lady who grew up as a refugee in Germany during World War II. And when she made this small donation from a fixed income, she made a note that said, I know how these people feel right now. So that's why I'm donating. And we've even had people donate from Ukraine who yeah. are <laughs> have lost their jobs and don't know what the future holds. And they've been donating because they know that we can get protective gear to their guys on the front. So I think, uh, you know, if they can do it, we can do it. That sounds good. Um, we're out of time this week. But uh, Jason, Paulina, thank you very much for all your time telling us your stories about the church, about what you're working on and how we can help. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Jeff. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you. So that's uh, Jason Stout and Paulina Pedubna Balif. Balif, 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 Balif. I'm not saying your la- your married name correctly. Balif. It's good. Okay, just Balif. Anyway, very nice of them to talk to us uh, this week. We hope you've all enjoyed this. We know Ukraine's really important. Don't let it just subside in your mind. It is still an issue and it's still happening. And it affects Latter-day Saints and it, just like it affects all Ukrainians and people even well beyond that as the refugee community 
you know, spreads around the world. So we hope you'll, of course, again, go to responsibilityfoundation.org and clinfoundation.org and find ways that you can help out. And thanks for taking the time to listen, folks. We uh, hope you'll join us next week for more This Week in Mormons. You can find the links to everything we've talked about today over at thisweekinmormons.com. Join us on social, uh, support us on Patreon, by the way, if I could put my plug in, patreon.com slash thisweekinmormons, help us keep the show going because we tend not to run many ads on here, but uh, it's still not free to make it. So you can help us do that thing. It'd be really appreciated. Until then, uh, it's been a good week. We'll talk to you again next week. This has been This Week in Mormons. Bye-bye.